My name is Tim Seidel. I'm Associate Professor of Peacebuilding, Development, and Global Studies and Director of the Center for Interfaith Engagement at EMU. And to all the students, faculty, staff, our community members here in Lehman Auditorium and streaming online, I want to welcome you to this morning's convocation with our special guest, Dr. Ibu Patel, founder and executive director of the Chicago-based Interfaith Youth Corps. The Center for Interfaith Engagement is privileged to host this morning's convocation. It is a special time to talk about interfaith work. And I want to, in particular, I want to wish a blessed Yom Kippur to our Jewish friends who will be entering into that holy day this evening. So over a decade now here at EMU, the Center for Interfaith Engagement, or CIE, has been working to promote collaboration among practitioners and scholars and students to build a more just and peaceful world through interreligious and intercultural understanding. And in recent years, CIE has worked to bring interfaith engagement even closer to the life of EMU. We do this by celebrating religious diversity, building interfaith competency, and working to shape EMU into a religiously pluralistic and inclusive learning community. And in, in giving particular attention at CIE, giving particular attention to the ways that white supremacy shows up in the forms of anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim racism in our communities, underscoring our commitment to a religious pluralism that's anti-racist and to an anti-racism that's religiously pluralistic. So CIE and EMU have made a number of connections to Interfaith Youth Corps and to Ibu Patel over the last decade, and this has included sending students, faculty, and staff to Chicago to the annual Interfaith Leadership Institute, um, as well as to teaching interfaith understanding seminars um, and receiving grant support for campus innovation and interfaith engagement projects here on campus. Um, and if you want to know an even longer history about the relationship between uh, Ibu Patel and folks here at EMU, you should talk to Provost Fred Niss, uh, who before he was here was in Chicago and actually met Ibu way back when. Dr. Patel's convocation talk this morning is entitled, We Need to Build Field Notes for Diverse Democracy. So just a, a sense of where we're going this morning. After Ibu's talk, CIE's Associate Director, Trina Trotter-Nussbaum, will come to the stage and invite us to a few moments of quiet reflection. You may want to even take out a pen and a paper and journal or sketch or doodle those reflections. Then Trina will facilitate some question and answers with Ibu up to 11 a.m., right? And then we'll pause. And for those who need to go to class or need to go to another meeting, um, you'll have that opportunity to exit. Um, but for those who are able to stay on, we encourage you to remain, and we will continue the conversation with Ibu until 11.30 a.m. All right, so now I want to invite to the mic SGA co-president and interfaith student chaplain and, and all-around great guy, uh, Philip Crable, to introduce our morning speaker. Philip. Good morning, everyone. Dr. Ibu Patel is the founder and president of Interfaith Youth Corps, or IFYC, a nonprofit organization working to make interfaith cooperation a social norm in America. 
He is a respected leader on national issues of religious diversity, civic engagement, and the intersection of racial equity and interfaith cooperation. He is the author of four books and dozens of articles and is a frequent keynote speaker at colleges and universities, philanthropic con convenings, and civic gatherings, both in person and virtually. He served on President Obama's inaugural faith council. Born in, in Mumbai, Ibu grew up as an Ismaili Muslim in the western suburbs of Chicago, experiencing bigotry, but also taking inspiration from friends and neighbors from diverse backgrounds. As a student at the University of Illinois, he was involved in social justice work and soon came to realize that the leaders he respected most found their inspiration in faith. While earning a doctorate in the sociology of religion from Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship, Ibu began to organize interfaith projects around the world, laying the groundwork for what would become IFYC. Over two decades, he has led the organization from a handful of volunteers to a nationwide nonprofit that empowers students and educators on almost 600 US college and university campuses. IFYC is now a national nonprofit that equips the next generation of citizens and professionals with the knowledge and skills needed for leadership in a religiously diverse world. Partnering with educational institutions and civic organizations, IFYC is dedicated to making interfaith cooperation the norm and building interfaith America in the 21st century. Ibu is an Ashoka Fellow, a member of the Young Global Leaders Network of the World Economic Forum, and has served on Religious Advisory Committee of the Nat Council on Foreign Relations and on the National Committee of the Aga Khan Foundation. He was named the future policy leader by the Harvard Kennedy School Review in 2008 and one of America's best leaders by US News and World Report in 2009. He has been awarded the Louisville Grawemeyer Prize in Religion and the Guru Nanak Interfaith Prize, the El Hibri Peace Education Prize, the Council of Independent Colleges Academic Leadership Award, along with honorary degrees from 15 colleges. Ibu lives in Chicago with his wife, Shenaz, and two young sons. He is a diehard fan of Notre Dame football, Wilco, and really good coffee. Ibu, thank you for joining us this morning, and we look forward to this conversation. Hello, friends. So nice to be with you. Give me a thumbs up if you can see me and hear me. All right. The truth is I can't see or hear any of you, but I like the idea of, uh, of encouraging thumbs ups in an audience full, in an auditorium full of, of students at Eastern Mennonite University. So let me tell you what an exciting moment I think we live in, in American life. First of all, the beginning of a new academic year is always exciting. There's all of these new possibilities for what you can do and who you might be and what you might make of your campus community. But that journey for you happens to intersect with a journey for a nation, maybe even the whole world. We are at a molten moment in American democracy. The old ways are melting and new ways, new structures can be formed. My friend, mentor, Vincent Harding, one of the lions of the civil rights movement would say, I live in a nation that does not yet exist. And what he dreamed about and prayed for and worked for was a generation of young people who would be architects of a better America, America in which all of us can thrive. That's a nation we built together. And the focus of my talk today is how all of us can be architects of that new nation, 
of what Adam Sewer of the Atlantic calls a fourth founding. In order to accomplish that, we need to be builders. We need to be architects. We need to have a positive vision for the future and the skills and knowledge base to build the institutions of that future. My presentation today focuses on some of the icons and examples who have done that in the past, some of the people who have guided me, and especially what you might do in the now and in the future. So let's go to one of those great icons uh, in the first image of this next slide. So this is the great John Lewis. There are not that many people in the latter half of the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century that have made a bigger and more positive difference in American life. One of the 13 original freedom riders, one of the uh, founders and the chairperson of SNCC in the early days, one of the people who organized the March on Washington, John Lewis was one of the people that helped bring down the evil regime of Jim Crow segregation in the South. And it made at least a dent in white supremacy. This is John Lewis, the protester. Next image. And that's John Lewis, the congressperson. And it's very interesting to ask the question, what does it mean to have the skills and the fire to take down an evil system? And what does it mean to be the architect of a better system, a new system? What skills, what methods do you need to use if you're going to be a congressperson after you're a protester? There's a journalist once asked John Lewis, you know, now you're a middle-aged policymaker in the Capitol in, 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 in Washington, D.C. This, this is a place where you used to spend most of your time demonstrating. And John Lewis responded, when the drama in the streets is over, you have to continue the work of freedom by different means in other places. John Lewis, the protester, knew how to demonstrate. John Lewis, the congressperson, knew how to negotiate. John Lewis, the protester, helped to clear the space. John Lewis, the congressperson, helped to furnish the room. Very different modes. My question is, at a time when there's lots of talk of demonstration and protest, what does it mean to be an architect of a better social order, not just a protester of one that you want to weaken or do away with? What does it mean to be an architect of a better social order? Next slide. Here's one of John Lewis's friends and colleagues in the civil rights movement. This is Bob Moses died a couple of months ago, played in his own way the same kind of important role that John Lewis plays uh, in the civil rights movement. He also protests in the American South. He also demonstrates, in fact, there are great stories of Bob Moses as the single picketer outside of a segregated school, the single picketer outside of a grocery store that would not let black people in. One of the great demonstrators and civil rights protesters, the American South in the, in the middle part of the 20th century. Next image. And here's Bob Moses, the social entrepreneur. Because after he helps to 
desegregate American schools. He finds himself in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the 1990s. He's doing a PhD at Harvard, and his daughter is in a Boston middle school. And Bob Moses sees that African-American children in that middle school are often shunted into lower level math classes than white kids. Bob Moses knows that algebra is the gateway to higher level education and economic opportunities. But if you're taking algebra two or three years later than everybody else, you're basically relegated to second class, at least economic citizenship in the United States. So Bob Moses develops a better way to teach algebra to poor and African-American kids. He calls it the algebra project. He spreads it to schools all over the country. People he demonstrated against decades before, he is now negotiating with. Teachers who he once pointed a finger in their face because of the way that they excluded black kids, he is now doing workshops for them to teach them how to teach algebra better to those to the children of the people that they might have uh, of the parents they might have excluded decades before. Can you imagine what some people said to Bob Moses as he was doing this? Let me get this straight, Mr. Moses. You were one of the lions of the civil rights movement in the middle part of the 20th century. You helped end Jim Crow segregation. And then you went on to become a middle school math teacher. What is that about? And Bob Moses would say, don't you see that this is all part of the same work? He would quote his, his mentor, Ella Baker, would say, listen, the work of freedom is to engage a system that is not designed for your needs and help that system meet your needs. Sometimes you do it through protest and demonstration. You weaken or get rid of an evil regime. But mostly, we do it through building something better. And that's what Bob Moses did in his work on the Algebra Project, which incidentally won him a MacArthur Genius Award. Next slide. So this is my favorite American play of the last several years uh, for obvious reasons. But I think that this exchange between President George Washington and Alexander Hamilton sums things up for me. President George Washington says, hey, listen, winning is easy, governing is harder. And when Washington talks about winning, let's just remember just how remarkable it is that this ragtag army of farmers and, and blacksmiths pulled together across 13 fractious colonies defeats the mighty British Empire. Washington is basically saying ending an evil regime is a lot easier than building a better system. Ending an evil regime is a lot easier than building a better system. There's a great line that it's actually easier to fire up an angry mob than it is to run a fair trial. It is easier to fire up an angry mob than it is to run a fair trial. But every decent society is characterized by fair trials, not angry mobs. So as we live into this fourth founding of the United States of America, as we are architects of a better social order, I think the key question for us 
is not how do we more fervently resist an order we dislike. It's how do we build the institution of an order we do. The fair trials and the little leagues, the algebra projects and the African American history museums, which is one of the things that John Lewis did as a congressperson. What does it look like to be an architect of the institutions of a more beautiful social order? George Washington had it right. He didn't retire after uh, he led the defeat of the mighty British Empire. He rolled up his sleeves and he got to work. What does it look like to build a new nation, an American democracy that would welcome people from the four corners of the world, people praying in different languages, including not at all, and invite them to build a nation. Incidentally, the sins and the mistakes of the European founding generation of 1776 are legion. We should not forget that. George Washington's mouth was filled with the teeth of his slaves. You heard that right. When George Washington's teeth fell out, he removed the teeth of his slaves and he put them in his own mouth. That is a sin. And yet, these same sinful men, misguided as they were on so many things, created an architecture that allows us to improve our nation. And amongst the elements of that architecture was they dreamed the first truly religiously diverse democracy. In a letter to the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island, Washington writes in the early 1790s, this government should give to bigotry no sanction and to persecution no assistance. He's writing that to a Jewish community during his first presidency. Let all sit under their own vine and fig, let there be none to make them afraid. He's quoting the Bible on protecting and cherishing diversity. How do we live in to the beautiful parts of the blueprint that Washington and Hamilton and Franklin and Adams and Madison and Jefferson set forth, even as we suppress and eliminate the worst parts? Remember, it's not just about revolution. It's about creating and operating a new kind of social order. Next slide. So one of the ways that I got to be thinking about this is uh, by reading uh, Michelle Alexander's column in the New York Times uh, uh, around 2017, when she, you know, there was lots of talk of, of resistance those days, there still are. And Michelle Alexander, who has played such a central role in the movement for, in the movement to oppose a racist criminal justice system, said, listen, I don't want to think of myself as just the resistance. I want to think of myself as the cultivator of the river of human civilization and human freedom. I don't want to be limited to just opposing what other people are doing wrong. I want to expand into what I think should be right. What is a more beautiful social order? So it's striking. I wanted to share with you that, that this individual who is often thought of principally as somebody opposing a racist system, and she certainly does, the new Jim Crow pulls no punches, her book. But she sees herself principally as the architect of a new social order. 
We are not the resistance. We are cultivators of the river of human freedom. And that means all of us, all of us. Michelle Alexander talks about a multiracial, multicultural, interfaith democracy waiting to be born. We are the ones who are the builders of that. Next slide. At the beginning of this new school year, I would ask you to think, what is your role in the building of that? And part of what my friend Deepa Iyer writes about is there are actually different roles. There's people with different energies, different skills, different knowledge, right? There are certainly disruptors. That's, that's important. John Lewis, Bob Moses, Michelle Alexander, they, they were not afraid of disrupting an evil regime. But look at how positive most of those roles are. Storytelling, healing, building, experimenting, weaving, vision, guiding. Which are you? Which are you? And I'll say again, this is principally about building the world and the nation we want to live in. Right? It is principally a positive energy. And I emphasize that because there's so much talk of anger these days. There's so much talk of anger across the spectrum. And I'll go to the next slide. I want to introduce you to somebody that I admire a great deal in, in this world. Uh, uh, another great figure in 20th century American and African-American history, that's the great Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman, I mean, he, he understood anger, right? He saw it, I'm sure he felt it. Uh, grew up in Jim Crow South, uh, had to fight racism and ugliness all of his life. Deeply Christian, wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited, which Martin Luther King Jr. would carry with him wherever he went. And Howard Thurman had this powerful insight, right? That I, 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 I need to hear myself so often, which is that however righteous anger might be, there's a problem with it. And it almost always burns down more than its intended target. And I remember my days as somebody who was principally motivated by anger in my social change work. Honestly, it just burned things down. Mostly it burned up my insides, but it burned places all around me too. It burned friendships, it burned organizations, it burned ideas. And so I'm not saying that anger is not justified or righteous, or in some cases can be useful. I simply want to say that in my own life, I have found that it is a method that I put away. And I think that there is a spiritual reason for that, right? Which is that I believe God intends us to have a positive energy. God gives us light to illuminate, not to burn. And I get that insight from my own Muslim faith, also from luminaries from other faiths like the great Howard Thurman. If we go to the next slide, I'll, I'll give you an example of this from, from a very different text. So that's Daenerys Targaryen from Game of Thrones, and that's me right next to her, a fire-breathing dragon. At least that was me in, in some part of my activist days. Uh, I felt like breathing fire everywhere. And when I watched Game of Thrones, which I just think is, you know, for all its uh, for all its blood and gore uh, and, and and high and great explicitness, uh, uh, I think it's a it's a, also a, a great piece of literature uh, on the page and on the screen. 
And as I watched what what um, what the filmmakers did with Daenerys Targaryen and her dragons, I thought that this was a great metaphor for for the fire of social change that can sometimes defeat oppression, but that can very often also burn down good things. And so for people uh, who don't know, uh, part of the story is that Daenerys Targaryen hates oppression. She hates uh, enslavers. And as she continues, her, goes on her quest for the Iron Throne, for the leadership of the Seven Kingdoms, she goes all around the known world and her dragons burn down oppressive structures. They burn down enslavers. But when she installs herself on those thrones in those different cities, she discovers her dragons can't tell the difference between a slaveholder and a farmer. Fire just burns everything down. And Daenerys Targaryen herself gets so accustomed to the fire of her dragons, it effectively becomes the only tool that she has. And when she finally wins, when she becomes the queen of the seven kingdoms, the protector of the realm, the first thing she says is not, now begins my great reign of peace and prosperity and pluralism. The first thing she says is, we need to go to the edges of the world and find other oppressors to burn. Because all she's done is burn. That's all she knows. It's the, literally the only vision and knowledge and skill that she has. And I think that this is one of the great challenges of, of being led by anger, is when it comes time to govern, as George Washington says, what do you do if all you know how to do is destroy? If all you've done is defeat an army and not build the institutions of a different and better social order. Next slide. So I actually have very personal experience of this uh, um, in starting my own organization, IFYC, which Provost Niss uh, uh, was, was so encouraging in back in the early days when, frankly, I wasn't very much older than you. And IFYC uh, didn't, wasn't a 50-person organization based in Chicago. It was 50 people in my head arguing with each other, 50 voices in my head. It was people like Provost Niss. Uh, back when he was a professor at Loyola University, who encouraged me. But the path started with this woman, an indigenous Mayan woman named Yolande Trevino. And back when the, uh, uh, the kind of raw elements of IFYC were taking shape, what I would do is go to these different interfaith conferences, and I would stand up and I would raise my fist and I would literally shout from the audience, uh, it's as if one of you stood up and raised your fist at me and started shouting at me. That's what I would do in, in the early days. And I would say, this is too boring. Where are the young people? Where's the real religious diversity? Where's the, uh, where, where's the, the addressing of racism? Where's the edginess? Where's the social action? And I would just yell at these people uh, who were giving keynote addresses and who were on panels. That what I do now, I was the person yelling at that at that figure. And this woman came up to me after one of those episodes when uh, uh, it took place at the United Religions Initiative Global Summit in, uh, in Stanford, California in June of 1998. I was 22, 23 years old. She came up to me and she said, huh, I'm interested in what you're talking about. You're saying that interfaith work should include more direct addressing of racism more young people, more social action, more edginess. 
fewer panels of senior theologians talking. That's really interesting. That's inspiring. You should build that. You should build that. That's a moment that changed my life. Because honestly, I thought that, you know, my only role was to breathe fire on what other people were doing, to critique them, to tell them what they were doing wrong, to revolt. I could lead sit-ins, but I could not be the seat of power in a room of people who were looking to build something. And that was the moment that, that I turned my energies from being a protester against the things that I didn't like to being a builder of the things that I did. And in some ways it's the same work, but in a lot of ways it takes different knowledge, different skills, a whole different vision, a whole different energy. And that's what I want to challenge you with today. Whatever you might be critiquing, whatever you might be mad at, whatever holes you might find in other people's arguments, what's the vision you're cultivating? What's the world you're building? What's the institution you are dreaming of that can make life better for everybody? From the coal miners of West Virginia to the homeless people of San Francisco, from people who suffer typhoons in Bangladesh to people who suffer hurricanes in New Orleans. What's the architecture that's emerging in your head that improves life for all of us? There's this great line by Anne Césaire who says, at the rendezvous of destiny, there is room for all of us. You build that rendezvous of destiny. You create that room for all of us. What does it look like? How do you build it? How do you develop the skills to accomplish that? I want to leave you with this last slide and my final line. Sums up my main point here, which is, listen, the goal is not a more ferocious revolution. The goal is a more beautiful social order. You are the architects of that more beautiful social order. May God give you goodness. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ibu for what you have shared with us this morning. We so appreciate your wisdom and for your presence here with us remotely and in the world. So it's our turn to reflect on what we've heard this morning. So we're gonna take a couple of minutes to take in uh, what we've heard, the slides, the questions, the pictures, the images, and we're gonna ask ourselves several questions, and we're gonna give some time for this. So if you're here in the auditorium, after you've looked at the questions on the slide that will appear, you can close your eyes and think about them. You can open them, open your eyes and journal. You can look around if you wish. If you're joining us online, you're also invited to close your eyes, or if you're near a window, feel free to look out. Listen for the sounds that you hear, the sights in your mind's eye, the questions that you've been asked. And so some questions to reflect on are these. So as you listened to Ibu this morning, was there something that was powerful for you? Something that connects deeply with you? What's a question that you might ask yourself right now? 
something that is emerging for you, something for which you're grateful for this morning. And I will add this question from what Ibu shared with us this morning. What is it you want to build? What's the architecture in your mind that's beginning, that might be just starting? Maybe a question hasn't formed in your mind, but maybe there's a, a comment or, or a reflection that's just starting. You can write that down or, or listen, listen for it in your head. We're going to play a short piece of music from a children's choir in Estonia entitled Musica. It's based on a poem, and I'll just recite the first two lines to start this reflection. And it must be somewhere, this original harmony, somewhere in the great nature, hidden. You're invited to this time of reflection, and we'll come back in a couple of minutes. You're invited to open your eyes again, come back to the space. And at this time, we invite you to share a question, some reflections, something that you would like to build, something that you heard this morning. We'll have about 11 minutes until 11 o'clock, and there are mics in the aisles. 
We'd like this time to be a time of what we call mindful engagement. So that means before asking a question or sharing a comment, you really reflect on what you want to say, making sure that we all understand what we hear, relating across the faith difference that is actually in this room as well as on this campus and what we've heard this morning, and being authentic in your sharing, sharing from your own experience. What is it you want to build? Was it, what is it that you want to see in the world? What is the world that you need? So we invite you. Ibu is back with us. Taking some much needed refreshment. Ibu, perhaps you have a question for the audience here, too. You've asked lots of great questions this morning, but maybe there's one to prime. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. So first of all, thank you. Thank you for having me with you. And I just want to say I, I am a huge admirer of the Mennonite tradition, a huge admirer of it. it uh, uh, one of the historic peace churches. I just it's it is a great example of a tradition that dreams of a world and builds the institutions that give that world uh, legs. And Eastern Mennonite is one of the examples of that, right? And I think that religious traditions do this very, very well at their best. They dream of a world, they dream of a kingdom on earth, so to speak. They dream of a Medina in, in uh, Islamic terms, and then they build the institutions, the mosques and churches, the schools and hospitals, the social service centers and refugee resettlement organizations that, that instantiate that world. So let me just first tell you how honored I am to be with you and my friends at Eastern Mennonite and the interfaith work you do. So here's the question that I would ask your students. In whatever critique you might have, if somebody played the Yolan Trevino role for you and said, that's really powerful, you should build that. If you say to, uh, um, if you were to say to uh, uh, a school, the, the female students here don't thrive the way the male students do. Somebody said to you, that's really interesting. You're the principal. Create a school in which women thrive like men. The black students don't thrive the way the white students do. That's really interesting. Create a, you're the principal. You're now in charge. Right. So my my thought experiment for you and one of the things I love about colleges and I love about intellectual life is the opportunity to do thought experiments. Imagine whatever critique you might have of a system or of an institution and imagine if somebody said you're in charge. You create you build an institution that would fix the problem that you're identifying. If you had to do that thought experiment, what would it look like?
should say Brian Martin Burkholder is also moderating the Facebook chat, so there might be some questions from, from those folks online as well. Yeah, this, this is not from the, the Facebook, but I, I hope there will be something from there. Um, I, I'm wondering, Ibu, if you, not everyone um, here at EMU and certainly more broadly it has worked with interfaith justice, if you will, or interfaith mm -hmm. literacy and engagement um, alongside racial justice and you know, other justice initiatives toward building this, this better, better world. Could you give us your, your short version of a compelling reason mm -hmm that liter interfaith literacy and interfaith engagement is essential for moving forward as a culture? Absolutely, thank, thank you for that. So I, I want one of the uh, thought experiments that I like to do, and I'll do it uh, from the location of, of Michigan Avenue and Wacker Drive in Chicago, is imagine if every religious institution within two square miles of where you sit disappeared overnight and you woke up in the morning and they 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 were gone so if you're standing at michigan and wacker in chicago the downtown islamic center is gone uh, uh fourth presbyterian church is gone there's a synagogue a bit north of Fort, fourth presbyterian church that is gone this is not these are not just places where people pray these are places where thanksgiving turkey drives happen these are places that fill the backpacks of students uh, on Friday afternoons to make sure that they have something to eat over the weekend. These are places that tutoring programs happen. Not only that, Loyola Law School is gone. Northwestern Memorial Hospital founded by Methodists is gone. Francis Xavier Ward School, which educates kids from all races and religions is gone. The point that I am making is that religious institutions make up a very significant part of our civil society. You're at one of those institutions, Eastern Mennonite. It's the, if you will, the arms and legs of God. The schools and the hospitals and the colleges and the social service organizations of America are built by religious institutions. Who do you think is doing disaster relief in New Orleans and New Jersey? Who do you think is resettling Afghan refugees? It's the organization started by Mennonites and Lutherans and Muslims and Mormons and Southern Baptists and Catholics and on and on. So in a very practical way, you don't build a better world without the institutions that are improving our current world. So the vision that IFYC has is what does it look like if Mennonites and Mormons and Muslims bring their positive energies together to build the kind of institutions that become the architecture of a better world? What if we do refugee resettlement more together? What if we do disaster relief more together? What if we use those really important opportunities to concretely serve our fellow human beings as an opportunity to get to know each other's faiths better, to share what inspires us to welcome the stranger, to share what inspires us to serve others who have been the victims of a disaster like a hurricane or a typhoon. So that's the vision of IFYC in very concrete terms, right? And the reason that we are even able to have that vision is because religious traditions 
religious communities have built these schools and hospitals and social service centers and refugee resettlement agencies. We are simply building from the existing architecture, appreciating that and attempting to strengthen, multiply and mobilize that into an even more radically welcoming vision. We do have some now from the Facebook Live feed and some of them will be for the second half hour, but I, I might name say them before we go into that because people might want to stay. First of all, from our Dean of Students, Shannon Dykus. Um, Shannon writes, Ibu, that you've referenced Harding, Lewis, and Thurman, who are leaders who reveal evolutions in their thinking about their social change beliefs and expressions. So what have been your evolutions more clearly and, and sharing them so that our, how might you encourage attention to that dynamic um, for our emerging leaders here at EMU? Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I, you know, I call it, uh, I called it earlier in my talk and I'm, I'm, I have a book that's about to be published on the title, We Need to Build, you know, um, I call it uh, clearing the space and then furnishing the room. And I think that, you know, my guess is that John Lewis, uh, um, if, if John Lewis didn't have to protest against segregation, he wouldn't have. I, I don't think John Lewis was in his heart principally somebody who was a revolutionary against an evil regime. If John Lewis could have become a congressperson at 23 and simply built the institutions of a more beautiful social order, I think that he would have happily done that, right? I don't think that John Lewis, Ella Baker, Bob Moses, Vincent Harding, Vincent Harding, uh, Uncle Vincent, who I knew and loved, uh, they, they were not born with uh, protesters' hearts. They were born with architects' hearts. They were just born into a time in which what they first needed to do was to clear the space. Uh, and then they had the ability to furnish the room. So my own evolution is... You know, my dad once told me uh, in a moment of like, a, especially of like uh, special dragon fire breathing from me, probably in his direction. He was like, listen, and you don't always have to burn down the house. Like you can sometimes just knock on the door and go sit at the table. And, and the truth is I can, right? Like, like many of us can. Um, uh, I'm not excluded from schools or uh, institutions. I get to come to the table and negotiate. I get to offer a vision for a better society and people listen and they will listen to you. They will listen to you. So, so um, my own evolution and, and part of what I realize about myself is, uh, and this isn't true for everybody. It's not true for all times. I'm simply making an observation about myself, but you know, I had adopted the persona of, of a fire breathing dragon because it was an attractive persona for my time and place, but it really wasn't who I was in my heart. And I knew pretty quickly it wasn't building the world that I personally wanted to build. And honestly, tearing something down is much easier than building something up. It's much easier to, to tell the principal of a school, um, your curriculum is racist or your school uh, has significant gender imbalances or whatever else. It's a lot harder to be the principal of a school and to fix those problems. It's a lot harder to do that. And, and it's a lot less sexy, honestly, right? Uh, um, you don't see a lot of 
videos about civic institution builders, right? Uh, you see a lot of videos about sit-ins and angry protests. So, so, but, you know, I think part of the beauty of religion is, as, as my Buddhist friends say, chop wood, carry water. Chop wood, carry water. Do the work. Do the work. What are you afraid of? Do the work, right? Uh, it's not about being on videos or being on the front page of newspapers. It's not about having 10 million people on your TikTok. If you want to build a better world, chop wood, carry water. And, and that's what it means to build an institution. That's what it means to run a university day in and day out. That's what it means to build an interfaith center. I admire those people. I think of them as a, uh, there's a the great poem by William Carlos Williams, The Red Wheelbarrow, which you might have all read in sixth, seventh grade, right? Go go back and look at it again, right? So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow uh, glistening with rain beside the chickens, right? This beautiful little simple poem. And I think about our civic institutions like that. So much depends upon Eastern Mennonite University, but it's probably not going to be splashed all over the front page of the New York Times unless something terrible happens. And yet I would rather be the person who slowly nurtures Eastern Mennonite University day to day, chopping wood and carrying water than the person who like is just, is just throwing firebombs everywhere all the time. So we want to acknowledge the time. Uh, we want to thank Dr. Patel for being here. We want to thank you all for your presence. And we want to encourage you to stay if you can. We have the next half an hour. But we want to allow those who have to be somewhere else. Uh, we wish you well for your day as you go and you chop wood and carry water and do the work.